If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Hebrews, the sermon letter of Hebrews, and here we are. This is week 15 of working our way through this sermon letter. I'll remind you, or if you're joining us uh, for the first time or listening online for the first time, a couple of things about this sermon letter. We do not know who wrote this. The author does not reveal himself. Now, some of you watched Jeopardy in the evenings. And a few weeks ago, I was informed that on Jeopardy, a question was, or the answer was, the Apostle Paul. And and the question was, who wrote the book of Hebrews? Jeopardy overstepped their boundaries. We don't know for sure that it was the Apostle Paul, but they said the Apostle Paul and the guy got money for it. But we don't know. The the author does not identify himself. And um, there's good reason to think that it wasn't the Apostle Paul. We also don't know specifically who he is writing to, but we do know that these were Hebrews, hence the name of the book. These were a former Jewish practicing people. And the occasion for the letter is clear that these Hebrews, these former Jewish practicing people who had become Christians, had reached a point because of persecution and hardship that they were thinking about abandoning their faith in Jesus, apostatizing from the faith. And that's the nature of this letter. And if you've been with us for these 15 weeks, especially in the last few weeks, you have seen and heard that this author is not afraid to repeat himself. And he is not afraid to make a point over and over and over again. That's his emphasis. He is very clearly trying to speak to these people that in Jesus, they have something far better, far superior than they've ever known or understood in their old covenant, Old Testament worship. And he is imploring them to grow in their faith, to not be stubborn in their hearing, to not be hard in their hearts, but to grow in knowing who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And so this morning, this is the third chapter in our English Bible, the third chapter in a row, where he's going to talk about the priesthood. And if any part of you internally is saying, I'm tired of hearing about the priesthood. I'm tired of hearing about blood. This is God's word. He's repeating himself to make a point that those people needed to understand in order to understand the gospel and that we do too. Amen? So give your attention to Hebrews chapter 9 verses 1 through 15 and listen to the clarity of the gospel that he's trying to give. Now, the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread, the showbread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, 
and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these details, these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all, by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, Cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant." Ooh, a lot of words, a lot of meaning. Let's pray that God would help us understand the Christmas message, the gift of God that we find here. Let's pray. Lord, would you be our teacher this morning? It's easy for us to be overwhelmed by these details that are so foreign to us and to our worship. But Lord, would you help us to see the symbol and meaning and all that it says to us? when we have Jesus as our high priest. And we pray this and ask it in his name, as his church. Amen. There is a need, there's a profound need for gospel clarity in our day. There's always a need for gospel clarity, but for us in our day, think what you know of all the confusions about the simple gospel, the saving message that God has given his, given his church. For us, we're in a culture that is beyond postmodernism. 
We live in a world that say you cannot say anything is true or good. That would be judgmental. That would be bound by time. It's a postmodern culture and, and it won't let you easily think that way. We're living in a culture that also has language and pressures of moralism that suggests that what the church is really about is just being a good person. As if it is the goal of the church to just be good citizens wherever you are sprinkled. Likewise, in our world, we're bombarded with teachings of relativism, that everything is good, or of pluralism, that says the only thing not good is to say that something is not good. And then, of course, and we see this in our Bible Belt everywhere, there is the flourishing of what's been called the prosperity gospel. That the sum of the scriptures and the work of Jesus is to make us financially successful or successful in whatever we put our hand to, whether it be sports or just fill in the blank. All these are confusions of the true gospel and of what God has said He is doing for His church and in this world. The author of Hebrews goes out of his way in these three chapters that we've recently studied to rehearse and explain the gospel. He's trying to give gospel clarity to these confused Hebrew Christians. It's his central point of his sermon letter. And in our text, he does so by explaining that old covenant worship and practice, even down to the furniture used, and how it really was just a shadow and type and symbol of what would come in the new covenant through our mediator, the Lord Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15, the author introduces to us what in the NIV, what I read, is the language of ransom. Now, if you're reading from a different version, it may say redeemer. Some will say mediator. Some may even say guarantor, which is used in a previous text. All of those are synonyms to say that God has done something through a person, through the God-man, through the Lord Jesus, which is the very thing we're celebrating at Christmas. And the idea of ransom for us, as we understand it, when you hear ransom, you probably understand that it is the payment required by those who are holding captive hostages. Those being held captive. Those who are hostages. And there is gospel clarity for us in understanding this language of ransom, this imagery of ransom. And it's the very thing that we are celebrating at Christmas. That we who are prisoners in bondage to sin, held hostage by our sin, are in desperate need of a deliverer who could pay a price that we could not produce. And that's the story of Christmas. It's the clarity of the gospel, and it's what the sermon, the sermon letter, is all about. We are ransomed. We're ransomed from sin 
by blood through a mediator. That's the Cliff Notes version of chapter 9. That's as succinctly as, as, as we're going to hear it this morning. So three quick points. We're ransomed from sin. We're ransomed by blood. We're ransomed through a mediator. And all of that is why we celebrate Christmas. So first, we're ransomed from sin. The author in chapter 9 is giving this description of the tabernacle. And this is where we could get into the details and be lost quickly. It would be a very difficult sermon, even harder than it already is to sit through. So the quick Cliff Notes version for us to walk away with and maybe talk about at our lunches is this imagery of the tabernacle that he gives. The tabernacle where there are tent rooms, there are spaces of meeting. And there are two kinds of access that are being emphasized in this imagery of the tabernacle. The first is that there is limited access. The second is that there is very limited access. And all of that is intended to communicate a spiritual truth. And that is that we have a sin problem. And the holiness of God is not to be accessed with us in our sin. There are outer courts for the laity, for the people. Then there are tents of meeting for the priesthood. And those, that is to be entered specifically by priests. It's not for anyone to go moseying in to the tent of meeting. But then there's this additional place called the Holy of Holies. And there's a curtain that separates, that limits access. And there's all these furnishings that are beyond the curtain that symbolize the person, the nature, the work, the very presence of God. And that curtain is a division that suggests you may not go there. The only person who could go there, the author of Hebrews says, and the scriptures tell us in the Old Covenant, was the high priest. And he couldn't just mosey in there either. He could go once a year with blood sacrifice on behalf of the people and for his own sins. Very restricted, very limited access. And this is a part of that shadow and type and imagery and communication that all that detail is intended to communicate. And I know when we read our Bibles, we get buried in the details and we just skim by it. But that Cliff Notes version this morning is reminding us that God is addressing humanity's sin problem. And he's communicating his holiness, his standard. Andrew Murray says this in summing that up. That curtain, that veil that separated everyone and protected the holy of holies and its access. The curtain was the symbol of separation between a holy God and sinful man. That they cannot dwell together. The tabernacle visually expressed this truth. God desires man to come and to worship and serve Him, but man cannot come too near. So the veiling curtain kept him at a distance. God's love calls the sinner near, but God's righteousness demands that he keep back. And in that, you should feel tension. 
That's what we're supposed to feel. That God comes near and He calls His people, but we can't pass through the curtain. We can't bridge the gap. And the issue is our sin. It's the sinfulness of humanity. God is communicating symbolically that truth to His people. And that creates what I'll call this morning a holy tension. A holy tension. That we have this tension. There's a tension between sinful man and a holy God. There is a need for a holy resolution. Something that will relieve that tension. And you can see where the conclusion is. It's Christmas. Is that holy tension can be resolved by holy resolution. But we'll get there in a minute. This plays off. If you were with us last week, we talked about how... Uh, The scriptures play out as if the Old Covenant was Act 1 that anticipates and creates longing for Act 2 and what would come in Jesus. That all the symbols and shadows and types are creating a a desire for these to be resolved. And that's Act 2. The curtain is symbolic of Act 1. There's tension between God and man. And that takes us to our second point that the author of Hebrews makes, that we are ransomed, and it's by blood. It's by blood. Now, he gives a description of that tabernacle, of the rooms, and the very furnishings of the room. I'm just going to comment on a few of these furnishings. Two, in fact. And these are images, and they have meaning, like everything else. But he comments about the lamp stand that is present in the Holy of Holies, and the showbread or the consecrated bread. And these things symbolized all that God was, all that God will be, and all that God had been to His his unfaithful covenant people. And Jesus would take these images, by the way, and show how He was the fulfillment of them. That lampstand... Jesus would come into the world and say, I'm the true light of the world. And that showbread, Jesus would come in his ministry and say, I am the bread of life. So these things were images and symbols and types that the Lord Jesus would come to earth and say, now the true light of the world has come. Now the true bread of heaven has come. They didn't understand that, but we've been given the benefit of seeing that Jesus is the fulfillment. All of those furnishings, all that they symbolized and communicated, Jesus is the one, and by His blood, that holy tension can find holy resolution. We know that all these furnishings and these tents of meeting, these locations, I told you last week, The priesthood was a busy priesthood. It was a bloody priesthood. All of that reminding us of how severe our sin and our sin condition is. Washings, sprinklings with blood, sacrifices of animals. And here the author of Hebrews tells us in chapter 9, it's not through the blood of those animals that anyone could be forgiven. Those things make one outwardly clean. But your problem is inward. And you need a sacrifice 
that can cover all of your sin once and for all in the person and the work of Jesus. And that's the blood, that's the righteousness that the author of Hebrews is reminding these people that they are dying for, that they are desperate for. Now remember the context. Some of them are thinking they'll go back to their former way of worship. They'll go back to their former faith because of the persecution that they're receiving as Christians. And so he is intentionally laying out for them the very thing they want to return to and showing how inferior it is and how Jesus has superseded it, which would leave one to conclude, how and why would I go back to an empty shadow, an empty symbol, when the real thing has truly come? That's his application. That's his point. And that takes us to our third point. That we have been redeemed, we've been ransomed through a mediator, through a redeemer, through a grantor. And this one who would redeem us, as he describes Jesus, as the scriptures reveal Jesus, he would come as a substitute. He would pay the price of his own blood for the sake of his people. And not only would he be a substitute, but he was a willing and innocent volunteer. What the scriptures say was a spotless lamb, a perfect lamb. Now that's beautiful imagery, and it's probably not been captured visually more beautifully than if you've seen or, of course, read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I was thinking this week as I was working through this passage, the imagery, for those of you who've read it, for those of you who've seen it, remember in your minds the setting of the death of Aslan, the great lion who represents the Lord himself. The witch with Aslan spread out on the stone table, the altar of sorts, plunges a priestly kind of knife into the heart of the great lion. Having shaved him, ridiculed him, mocked him, with all those demonic creatures celebrating the embarrassment of Aslan, the shaming of Aslan, the scene in the movie that captures it visually so well. The next morning, Lucy and Susan come and they're weeping because the lion is dead. Aslan is spread on a table and is dead, truly dead. And they're weeping for this. But then comes the resurrection of Aslan and the rising of the morning sun. Now, I'm going to read this because there's no way to retell it in my own words. But with that imagery and with Hebrews in mind and the great high priest who would spill his own blood, listen to how C.S. Lewis has written this. They, the girls, who were weeping, looked around. There, shining in the sunrise, larger than they had seen him before, shaking his mane, for it had apparently grown again, stood Aslan himself. Oh, Aslan, cried both the children, staring up at him, almost as much frightened as they were glad. Aren't you dead then, dear Aslan, said Lucy. Not now, said Aslan. You're not, 
You're not a... asked Susan in a shaky voice. She couldn't bring herself to say the word ghost. Aslan stooped his golden head and licked her forehead. The warmth of his breath and a rich sort of smell that seemed to hang about his hair came all over her. Do I look it? he said. Oh, you're real. You're real. Oh, Aslan, cried Lucy, and both girls flung themselves upon him and covered him with kisses. But what does it all mean? asked Susan when they were somewhat calmer. It means, said Aslan, that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known, here it is, that when a willing victim who has committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. And now, oh yes, now, said Lucy, jumping up and clapping her hands. And now, said Aslan, presently to business. I feel I am going to roar. And there you have it. The promise of Christmas birth is the roar of Easter resurrection. He vividly captures in this story everything that the gospel is saying is true about our need for someone to die in our stead and their power to overcome the bondage, our hostage nature to sin. And Aslan has done it. We have one who has paid a ransom. We have one who has been a mediator. We have one who has been a redeemer. And he has done it from sin and by his own blood for his very own people. Maybe in trying to explain this to your children today, maybe in your family you've used language like this. Maybe there's, there's a, a disaster, a mess. And mom walks in the room and mom says, Ah, somebody's going to have to clean up this mess. That's what the Lord Jesus has done. He has come to us in our disaster, our ruin, our mess. Somebody has to pay for it. Somebody has to clean this up. And the author of Hebrews is saying that is precisely what the Lord Jesus has done. He has come to pay the price that we could not pay. He has come to clean up the mess that we could not clean up. That is the holy resolution to the tension that we know from Scripture exists between sinful man and a holy God. Somebody's going to have to pay the price. Somebody's blood is going to have to shed. And the Lord Jesus said He would shed His for His church. He would be a perpetual sacrifice by a perfect priest whose blood sprinkles us every minute of every hour of every day 
of every week of every year, forever. Meaning, if you are in him, you are covered in his blood. You are clothed with his righteousness. That's why, by the way, our hymns that we sing are, are just drenched with language of blood. You know, the scriptures refer to us as blood-bought saints. That's what it's all about. Or the hymn, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that blood lose all their guilty stains. It's the language of blood. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. Or William Gadsby's hymn that we've sung a little. All her debts, the church's debts, were cast on me, Jesus. And she must and shall go free. This is what the author of Hebrews is saying to those who are thinking about walking away from Jesus. Or our Christmas hymn that we have sung and will sing again. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and what? Ransom, captive, Israel. This is the story of the gospel. This is gospel clarity that you and I have a sin problem that has made us incapable of being near to God. And he did something about that problem. God took on flesh and came down to be a sacrifice for us, to break the stone table so that with his authority, we can now come into his presence. In every way, in every way, this new covenant is better than the old. Do you see it? It is better because Jesus is better. He makes all things new. He makes all things better. How could you ever walk away from him and go back to the shadow and type and symbol and image of worship and religion when you have the real thing right before you? That is what the author of Hebrews is saying. Let's pray that that message would penetrate our own hearts. Lord, would you now help us to believe what we have heard, that you truly have once and for all paid the price demanded of each of us, and that apart from Christ, we cannot pay that ransom. We'll continue in being bondage, in bondage and being hostages to our sin. But Lord, may we praise you as we should, that you are our high King of heaven, that we are ransomed, healed, restored, and forgiven because of your Son. And we pray this in his name. Amen.